Hey everyone, how's it going? Welcome to episode five of the podcast. This time, drummer, instructor, and motivational speaker Dom Femulero enters the vibe chamber. But before that happens, I wanna let you guys know that this is a video podcast as well. The show is actually recorded and streamed live to YouTube right as it's happening. So if you wanna see full episode archives, clips from the show, or you wanna see when I'm gonna be live next, you can check out the vibe chamber on youtube.com. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Dom fam, you Lero. How are you? <laughs> Fantastic, Scotty. Fantastic. <laughs> where, where, where are you coming to us from today? I'm in my studio here in the, uh, I live on the North Shore of uh, Long Island in Port Jefferson Village. And mm -hmm. I have a studio that, I, that I've got here that I've redesigned and put panels up and kind of got it more acoustically set up. And I've got my sets in here and I teach out of here to the world. Yes, fan. I remember I've been. I took so many lessons with you up until right before, right when I went to college, yeah. and uh, I remember taking lessons back uh, before the whole drum shelter thing. I remember taking lessons in your in, in your basement in your house. Absolutely, man. Sure. And then coming out, and I remember I came out one 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 lesson, and you you were always showing us the the room, but it was always just concrete. And then I came there one day, and it was like beautiful and insulated. I'm trying to think. How long ago did you build that that drum room? Uh, I think 2006 is when I had built it. 2006, 2007, I finished it. So uh, been up for a few years now. Jeez, it, honestly, time has gone by so fast that it feels like like you, five years ago. You were but a mere child when you came here, and I just enjoyed our lesson because you had such passion and such skill, and you were such a great student. And you listened, and we went through the books, and your parents were always supportive. This was it was an incredible journey that you're on. I remember. <laughs> I remember all those lessons because I was like, uh, my technique, I just remember being awful when I came to you. And it was just, it was a lot of traditional grip when I didn't need it. Um, and I just remember going through and being like three hours into a lesson. And I've had lessons before where I get 45 minutes in and I'm like, okay, I've had enough. And then the next thing you know, it's we've had a four hour lesson and I feel like, you know, we're just kind of warming up to everything. And that was always great. And, and the ability to, you know, really beat the shit out of the drums in your drum room because we didn't have to worry about neighbors or anything. It was a great experience. It was totally sound contained. And you'd come in here and we'd play. And, we, and it was just so great to see you to play. And, and I, I worked you hard, man. I worked you hard and you held up. It was absolutely amazing. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to say thank you to everyone who's watching right now, whether you're watching live, watching the replay, or listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if anyone is in the chat and you have any questions for Dom, you can just post those there. I will keep monitoring it and I will read them to him. But Dom, I'd like to start out by asking quickly. So I'm going to go back early in your life, pre-drums. Where are you from? I'm from a little town called Baldwin on the south shore of Long Island. Mm-hmm. And my parents were very supportive of music. They were absolutely wonderful, you know, guiding role models for uh, myself and my siblings. And we had a great, great childhood in Baldwin. My father was the chief of the fire department. And he was a very, very dedicated person to the service of his community. And uh, eventually they uh, named a, fire a firehouse after him. Wow. And we were there for the celebration. And uh, he's got a big bronze plaque on this firehouse in Baldwin. So it's a... It's a dear to our hearts for sure. Did he play music at all too? My parents, my mom sang, um, and my dad was just an incredible supporter of, of, uh, 
of what he wanted to see us do, which was play music. My two older brothers played instruments and my younger sister. And uh, we all just kind of like played music and played together. And back in the mid sixties, when the Beatles had hit, you played Beatles songs and you got involved with this band and we played and my parents supported it. And here I am today, many years later. What was it that got you into playing the drums? Well, it really was, you know, I, 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 I like many millions of other people, it probably was that performance of the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show in February of 1964, that when we watched this, there were over 70 million people watching this evening variety show. It was called the Ed Sullivan Show. Ed Sullivan was kind of like a master of ceremonies. And he'd introduce all different kind of acts. There'd be jugglers, there'd be dancers, there'd be comedians, and there would be bands that would play on. And when he introduced this band from, the, from, the, from Liverpool, we were just blown away by the intensity of how they sounded, the music they played, and uh, it was, uh, it just kind of pulled you in. And it was a time where America was kind of mourning. Uh, just the, the fall before, November 22nd of 1963, we had witnessed John F. Kennedy being assassinated mm -hmm. in the eyes of the world. So the country and the world was mourning. So the early part of that next year in February, early February, when this band hit the show, which was the most popular show to watch, when we watched this band come out and play songs of happiness, all you need is love, you know, all my loving, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to hold your hand. These were songs of hope and simple songs that made you feel good. And it lifted, for sure, myself, my family, America and the world up to a higher level of hope that just sucked us into the music industry. Were you just in awe when you saw that live? It was, it, it was, it was kind of almost more than awe. It was hypnotic and it was life-changing. Mm -hmm. It allowed us to have a direction of hope that we didn't have before. And it gave me the desire to want to then push myself to learn this craft as much as I could, to want to study it and, and be a part of it. And if there was ever a chance that I can make this a livelihood, it would have been a miracle. So hence, here I am living this miracle. And who else would you say were big influences to you early on besides the Beatles? Well, from that point, someone that, that I saw play even before the Beatles uh, in, in, on movies was a very famous dancer by the name of Fred Astaire. Absolutely. He was a drummer. Mm -hmm. And there were several movies where he played drums in it. So when I saw that and how he danced and played drums, that kind of sucked me into music and sucked me into drumming. Then the Beatles hit. And then after the Beatles hit, then I discovered Buddy Rich. I heard his mm. big band. I was like 14 years old. He played at a theater near me. I went in there, and when I heard him play with his big band, I just said, what the heck is going on here? It was just so exciting. So Buddy was another person that kind of sucked me into the, to the love of wanting to continue pursuing this craft. Did you ever get to meet people like Buddy or uh, Ringo Starr or any other members of the Beatles? And later, I, I, later on in your life and be able to, you know, at least say to them, thank you so much for this inspiration. Oh, yes. Well, well, I mean, Ringo, I've never met Ringo, but through other people that I know who know Ringo, I've been able to get a message to him, which has been pretty powerful. And Buddy Rich, I met in 1971. I was 18 years old. My teacher here on Long Island, Al Miller, was dear friends with Buddy. They were actually in the Marines together in World War II as martial arts instructors. They were paired together, Buddy from Queens, New York, Al from Long Island, both from New York, they got together, they became friends. So every time Buddy would come into town, he would call Al up. I was one of Al's best students and Al would call me up and I'd go with Al and we'd go to see Buddy. So I met Buddy when I was 18 years old in 1971 and got to see him perform so many times and had dinner with him several times and was able to tell him what a great influence he was for me. 
is it true because they always say about buddy it's like you could go see him so many times in a row and even though you'd hear the same songs they were always like a completely different level every single night so you never got bored of it are those types of tales true about him um, th th not only are they true, but they're probably not even enough of a myth. <laughs> because I, I went to see Buddy once. He was playing at a, a club called Jupiter's, and uh, and with Al Miller, my my teacher, we went and we saw him every night. Mm -hmm. He started Tuesday through Sunday. Every night we went two shows a night, and I went to hear the first night opening show, and he was on fire. He played like. Like I'd never seen him play before. It was incredible. So I'm driving home with Al. I said, my gosh, buddy, it was on fire. He said, well, we're going to go back again tomorrow night. And Al always had, you know, backstage, you know, we, we sat backstage when we watched Buddy. So we go the next night. Now it's it's Wednesday night. They had the Tuesday opening night. Wednesday night we get there. And we sit back there. And I'm thinking we're just going to have another great night. He blew me away. He took it up a notch. Like he played some stuff. Drumming technically wise, like under his arm and played, and we just the speed. It was like it was, it, it blew my mind. Now we're driving home the second night, and I said, Al, this is insane. We, we, we got to go every night. We go now Thursday night. It's jam packed. We walk in, we sit in our same two folding chairs backstage behind the curtain, about three feet away from Buddy's drum set. He comes out on fire. First tune, he hits the ground running, blew us away again. Every night, got better mm -hmm. but every night was amazing so sunday evening now the closing night we get there and there were many celebrities there sinatra was there he then took it up a whole nother notch so he really had the ability of knowing how to turn not only himself on but how to turn the band on thus turning the people on that's a whole nother skill were you ever there to experience kind of that you know another myth about buddy is his is his kind of his his rage were you ever there to see him as angry as people talk about? You know, uh, no, I didn't. And, and, I, and I, I, I met Buddy in 1971, and I knew Buddy pretty well. I mean, I met him a lot up until his death in 1987. So, um, I mean, I saw him speak to people in a, in, a, in a leadership way, which was like, you know, make sure you're on time and get it together, but never one of those rages that, that we hear about. And I, I mean, I was with him a lot of times. I had many opportunities if he was to have a rage. I, mean, I was on the bus many times. I didn't experience it, but I did see a very dedicated man that really loved playing drums and loved performing for people. So his commitment to people and, and his commitment to excellence was really what drove him. He just demanded that excellence from anybody in his band. He said, mm -hmm. listen, I'm going to play at my best. You need to strive to play at your best. Mm. So his commitment lifted the band members up. That's why every night it was great. Mm. Yeah, Amazing. I'm gonna be. I'm. I'm gonna be honest. I, I am always a little bit suspicious when I hear those types of stories about. Oh, he was overly angry. Of course, there's usually merit to it, but I'm always a little suspicious because it seems like, a lot of the time, it's people who just really care about what they do. And I think if you're if you put yourself in a position of saying like I'm gonna be in this guy's band, I don't think it's really fair to be talking crap about him because he really cared about what he did. Because if you're putting your time in. You don't want to waste his because he's putting his time in for you. Absolutely. I heard him give a lecture once to, uh, on the bus. He said to the band, I said, listen, after the first set, he called everyone back to the bus. He said, listen, and I thought the band was incredible. <laughs> and he calls them back. So we go with him onto the bus. And he said to the band, he said, listen, my name is the name on that marquee. I'm driving these people in here and I got to give them a show that's worthy of the, the money that they're spending. 
If they're here spending that money, I got to give them more than what they're spending. I need you to play at a higher level. So, I mean, he was he was intense. Yeah. Don't forget intensity. This is what this is what where I think the stories get kind of lost. Intensity is not anger. Intensity means full commitment. Mm-hmm. If you're speaking about you want this to go to a higher level and you want a higher level of excellence, it was intense. And Absolutely. he ran his band like the military. I once asked him, I said, buddy, boy, you run the band like, like you're in the military. I said, you know, on time, that bus leaves at 0900. If you're not there by 0900, that bus takes off. You, you don't make the bus. Even if you're walking up towards the bus at 0900, that <laughs> bus took off. He said, well, I run this like a military. He said, that's how Glenn Miller ran the band. When I worked with Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey, they were ex-soldiers. They ran the band like the military. You you were on time and it was scheduled. It was militaristic in the discipline that they had. So he ran it that way. And he really was pretty powerful on how he how he really kind of kept that band together. And the band worked big time. They did like 190, 200. Actually, no, I, I take that back. He told me one year he did over 300 dates in that year. That's absolutely incredible. And think about it, over 300 dates. Now, you remember, you're flying around the world. That's fl- You're performing on nights that you're flying with that kind of schedule. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and actually, it was, I, had, what, 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 I had that number in my head because Tower of Power does about 180 dates a year. Unbelievable. Oh, even that, you know, 220 less, even that, that's incredible. That, and, you know, with traveling and bus traveling and setting up and sound checks, that's a lot of dates. So if what Buddy did with a big band... Listen, to make this work, you had to be intense and disciplined. Yeah. And it's and it's one of those things where it's like there's a reason that he is, you know, kind of held up as like this up upper echelon of drummer and musician. And part of it is that intensity. And I think if if, you know, maybe he burned a couple bridges because he was a little too intense, but I think that's one of those things, it's like a worthy trade-off if you're going to make an incredible product. And when you're asking people to t- take their money that they've worked to have and spend it to see you, you got to give them a great show. You know, I have a, a dear friend of mine, Antonio Pedesano, who was a manager for many, many years for Frank Sinatra. Oh, Lord. And when Sinatra had had uh, passed away, he then became a manager for Don Rickles. And when we- <laughs> I love Don Rickles. Don was... Because was, was- they were good buddies, Frank and Don, right? They were great, great buddies. And they to build the kind of success that they had, like Buddy, you had to be intense. You had to be on time. You had to be in people's faces. If you wanted to have that kind of a career, you were, you were burning that candle at both ends, and many times you lit the center. <laughs> it's that kind of a pace. If you want that kind of success, you've got to be able to produce the kind of energy and time that takes those kinds of results. You know who they say is like a modern equivalent? Well, they, they just say this, and I would say he's like a modern equivalent, is um, people talk about Justin Bieber as being one of those guys who can go and put on, I think, who is it I was listening to? Is uh, Post Malone was talking about how Justin Bieber does like 300 back in his heyday when he was like 16, doing yeah. over 300 shows a night, and that's dancing, and that's running backstage, and you're on tour buses, and you're on planes. That's an incredible amount of dedication. That's not just being good at singing or being good at dancing. There's a whole nother skill of being able to travel like that and put on something that's at a level of, you know, people think about it. They they plan on going on seeing this thing. Yeah. And it's like this one time incredible event. But that event is happening 300 times that year, every single day. Absolutely. And being a writer 
and being a musician. He's a fantastic drummer. Yeah. Uh, from Canada, he plays Sabian cymbals. I had some connection with Justin, uh, you know, through some people, some some advice that he wanted as far as he plays open-handed. So we were talking about that, and he's a phenomenal musician on top of writing, on top of producing, on top of performing. Let me tell you something: you got a you got a buzz at a higher level. Yeah. Listen, I buzz at a higher level for what I'm doing. And at 67 years young, I'm still pushing myself. I'm in my studio at eight in the morning until seven at night, teaching and doing master classes, doing interviews, doing all this intensity for the sessions panel. It is intense. And I understand that the energy level that it needs is something which is driven by our passion and it is purposeful rewards. Yes. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, and I was actually, I was, I really, I've wanted to ask this for a while, but leading up to this, this show, I want, I was thinking about it. What is your approach, particularly to traveling the world so frequently, without getting completely bogged down by the, you know, pure, just the fact that you have to be moving so much? Is there anything that you do mentally besides that just reward of what's going to happen that you do to keep yourself fresh? Good question, Scotty. I, I, um, I read a lot. I've got, you know, over. A thousand books on my phone and Kindle, mm -hmm. so I read a lot. Uh, that's something which takes my mind off of the traveling process. So when I'm flying to Australia or to China, which is you know twenty plus hours of flying, almost a full day of flying, I'm reading books um, and I'm constantly writing books. I'm working on several motivational books now, so I'm entertaining myself by working on stuff that I'm that I'm whether it's a drumming method book, whether it's a motivational book, whether it's a business book that I'm writing whether it's other books that I'm reading just for inspiration, whether it's music I'm composing or whatever it is. So I keep myself pretty active in many areas. Mm -hmm. Time gets filled up pretty quickly. Yeah. Are you ever, do you, do you prefer to relax while traveling? And like, which of those is, is would you say works better for you? Being productive, writing the books, or relaxing and, and reading and just enjoying time off? I am relaxed in all of that. <laughs> So to me, when I'm working on a book, I'm relaxed. When I'm reading, I'm relaxed. When I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing, I maintain a high level of relaxation. For me, that's the secret of not allowing myself to get worked up, to get tense, to then have to relax, to unwind. Mm -hmm. I don't have to unwind because I don't let myself wind up in a tense way. I just stay at a high energy level all the time, whether I'm sitting in a, on a, in a plane seat or whether I'm preparing myself to set up the drums to get ready to perform. I just stay relaxed and stay in the moment all the time. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I and I think most people, when you, they talk about shoes, you think of you as being that high energy, you know, constantly like, yeah, this is fantastic. This is huge. You know, like all that, like stereotypical Dom Femulero stuff. And you, you say you keep that energy while you're relaxing, but... Is it the same level? Is it would you, would you say that that kind of public persona of yours is on that same level as your private persona when you're just when no one's around? Are they very similar? Or is there kind of a, a switch you have to do? Good question. You know, I, I um, it's not a switch. It's a it's a valve. <laughs> and I in like that, that. Valve, right? It's a valve, and I can I can open the valve. The valve is always open. It's how much I want to release from that valve. So to me, when I'm home with my dogs and my wife and, and, and I'm getting, coming home and we're going to have some dinner together, the energy valve is ready to unleash at any point. I just don't need it at that time. 
So the force is coming in. I just learned how to direct it to what I need at that time. If I'm going to go to the movies with my wife and we're going to sit and watch a movie, I'll sit and watch the movie. But at any given time, that valve, my hand's on that valve, and I can turn that valve on at any given time and unleash whatever I need. So it's this constant force that I have available that comes from my my passion, my positive reprogramming of my mind to always be positive, and my purposeful life that I feel that I'm I'm doing something that's good, that I'm offering to the universe more than just my mere existence. Mm-hmm. So by doing that, I feel that there's there's a lot to be accomplished, and I want to make sure in this time that I have on this earth that I don't know how long it is, that I'm able to use it as best I can. Mm. So it's kind of like when I, when I take a shower in the morning. When I get up to take a shower in the morning, I don't have the time to turn the valves on and feel the hot and then the cold and then adjust it and then change the nozzle. That, that's, that's, that's I'm wasting my life. <laughs> I get in the freaking shower, I turn both hot and cold on all the way, and whatever hits me, hits. it's always cold at first, then it gets hot, and then you go in there and I'm doing business, get scrubbing, doing, thank you very much, I shower down, turn it off, I'm out of there. Where does this come from? Is this, is this, did you build this or is it just, have you always been like that? This is, it absolutely has developed in time because I started to realize that there was more out of life available if I start seeking it, it's the desire to seek the value of life that is out there. All of nature gives us this energy. All of life gives us this energy. Anyone around us or anything around us is a moving object. This building I'm in is a moving object. It's a moving object on the earth, which is a moving planet. Absolutely. So there's always motion. We just have to tap into it. So it's always there. And I take those shower handles. I crank that up. It hits me. And the day starts on fire. And that, you know what, that, that, that makes me think of something that I've always been curious about is I think of your personality as something that really positively affects your career. Because obviously, if you're traveling, you got to keep that energy up, all this. But is there any part of your innate personality, you know, not conscious, just like what is built in that you think negatively affects your career path? Like, for example, for me, I procrastinate like like a, like a son of a gun. Like I I will put things I have to. The thing is, I, I don't do it as much, but that's purely because it's a conscious effort. Do you what part of your personality would you say is your Achilles heel to what you do? Um, well, probably probably my desire to want to do more. Mm. That's probably my one of my faults. I keep on wanting to do more. However intense my schedule is, when something else comes in and I feel I can do it, I take it on. And then I have to learn the skill of how to make it work. So I keep on getting better at it. Listen, procrastination is absolutely not in my life. <laughs> I do not waste a moment. At ever in my life, I am up, I am in focus, I am disciplined, and I am in go mode because I realize I only own now. And this is the name of my my next book I'm working on. It's called Owning Now. When we is that coming own, out? We own, well, I'm about 80% through it. I'm, I'm co-writing with my son who's a writer and an editor. So, uh, and we're working towards that. Owning now means I only own this moment. I don't own, listen, I don't own tomorrow. Hell, I don't even own later. You know, I've got friends of mine that, whether it's COVID or heart attacks, 
They're great one day, drop dead the next day. We don't own tomorrow. So I've got to make sure I maximize each moment the best, just like this podcast we're on right now. I want to make sure that whatever message there is to be had, that I get this clearly out there, I get this energized. So if and when I am long gone, someone hearing my voice from my grave, hopefully they will be moved because of the energy that I put into this moment right now. So do you prefer to be known as for your public speaking or as a drummer? I'm assuming you're gonna say public speaking, but which well, one would you say? Well, I, I, that I don't know. I, I, I don't think I have any one, one man. I mean, some people know me as an author of drum books. Some people know me as only an author of motivational books. Some people know me as a drum teacher only. Some people know me as a, as a player. You know, some people just kind of know me as a little bit of all of that. And to me, it's like, I just want to be known that during my lifetime, I pushed the edge as far as I could in the most positive, healthiest way to try to make a difference in this world. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing is, you know, talking about how people know you, a unique thing about you is that if you go just to the fact that people know you as a drummer, let's, you know, let's, let's, you know, pretend that that's how they know you specifically. They don't know yeah. anything else. You're not known as the guy from blah, 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 or the guy who did this. And that's a unique experience because most drummers and musicians as a whole, you go, oh, that's the guy who played with blah, blah, blah. Was that something you always wanted? Was that a conscious decision to, to kind of have that path of your career? It, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't, okay? In the early days, when I had the chance to play with certain artists like B.B. King and, uh, and Barney Kessel, a great, great jazz guitar player, um, when I played with them, even Lionel Hampton's big band, I was offered the job to join that band. And when I saw how much they were gonna pay, it like, it like and how I had to live, sharing a room with another musician on the road in funky hotels and motels, and then, you know, I wasn't being paid that much. I was making more money playing around the New York area and teaching way more than what they were offering me for a week's worth of work to play with the band. And so just to play with the band, to go on tour, was what they were saying. Well, then you can say you played with B.B. King or you can say you played with Lionel Hampton. I said, yeah, but I can't pay my bills. So to me, the business deal was, I thought it was better if I controlled my life and I ran my life the way I wanted to and worked with whoever I could work with with bands to still play great music with great musicians, but have a little bit more control over my life. I wanted to have a family. I've got a wonderful wife, Charmaine, who's married probably for, it's gonna be now 20, 28 years this coming Congratulations. Thanks so much. And and that alone was important for me. I wanted to have a family. She blessed me with three fantastic children that are that are inspired and living their passion. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to have that balance of that family house. I've got a wonderful house here in Port Jefferson Village. It's it's just, you know, and my my studio. So I was able to design the life I wanted. Now, would I have liked to have played with Chick Korea and, and done all that? Absolutely. Would I've loved to have played with Earth, Wind, and Fire or Blood, Sweat, and Tears or Chicago. Oh my gosh, some of my Stevie Wonder, some of my most famous favorite bands. But that didn't work out, but still I was able to make a difference in the contouring of the design of my life. Mm. And you know, you were, you were well, I mean, of course you know, I don't know why I say with you know, but uh, you were a very early adopter of Match Grip. That's, that's the first thing I remember learning from you yeah. is... Uh, you did a master class in, uh, I think it was New Hartford, New York. I'm from around that area, but I can't remember the exact town. Upstate New York. Yeah. And that's where my, my family's from. 
And that's why I learned match grip from you. And the thing I want to know is, you know, that was kind of viewed back in the day. You know, let me grab a pair of sticks real quick. Yeah, it was. For people who don't, people who don't know, uh, this is match, meaning both hands are exactly the same. This is traditional, which is how a lot of people play still now, but mostly in the past. Anyway, so <laughs> the th thing I want to ask is, you know, that was kind of viewed as, you know, it's, it's uncouth. It's not what you do. Um, what do you think right now in drumming is the next match grip? What is that next advancement that we're waiting for? Well, I, I think uh, a great question. I think, well, I mean, I played traditional grip for many years. And then I made the changeover because I realized by having both hands holding the, the grip the same way, it allowed me to lift my weaker side, which was my left hand, to a higher level. So my left hand now became more equal to my right hand. So that was an advantage in drumming. With, I think, where the future is going is clearly open-handed playing, where the hi-hat is lower and you play the hi-hat with your left hand. I think that's where the future is going because that frees up this cross-concept of playing and now more drummers are playing open-handed. Mm -hmm. And because of lowering your hi-hat, you can now add other areas around the left side of our drum set. And there are many drummers, like a student of mine, Frank Perry, has this ambi-symmetrical kit, which he calls, which is a literally a mirrored image kit around both right and left side. So you can play right-hand lead or left-hand lead. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where we're going, where you know, you've got players like Mike Mangini doing that. You've got the great Terry Bozio. You know, Thomas Lang, Virgil Donati, Marco Minimum, they're doing this now where they're opening up a whole nother way where the kit now is becoming right or left-handed. Guys like Billy Cobham were doing this first, Simon Phillips. So I think that's kind of where it's going, and it's exciting to see the development. Was there anything that you switched to that you thought was going to be a big advancement that you ended up going, eh, you know, after some practice, you didn't like it so much and ended up reverting back? Uh, no. Every change I made was well-researched, was well-thought-out. And uh, when I went to double pedal at the point, you know, single bass drum, that was the, that was the way we played many years ago. When the, you know, we had just a single, a single bass, John Bonham, single bass, you know, Steve Gadd was single bass. You know, Buddy, single bass, it was just that kind of thing. Louis Belson, although he had the double bass, two bass drums seemed to be too big a deal to carry around and play for the jobs I was playing. Then when the double pedal came around, where you can now have one bass drum but with two pedals, the concept of that was really important. My left foot was always very, very good. And because of that, when I counted the double pedal, that opened up a whole nother world of playing where many people said, oh man, this will never last. Not only am I still doing it, but now it's really kind of the, the wave of everyone now has a double pedal on their kit to play. Absolutely. Well, I kind of did the research and followed, and if I use the tool properly to express what I feel, I think that's got a big part of the advantage of, of staying with what you envision. Is, are there any things, I'm sorry, I'm just going through like this list of, of things I have in my head that I've been meaning to ask you for such a long time. You know, talking about, because traditional grip, if, you know, a lot of times can be very damaging, especially if you're, if you're hitting very, very hard, it's can, it can be damaging. And the thing is, what do you think right now, and it could be drummers or musicians in general that, you think that they do in general that's harmful? It could be like a, a habit, a mental attitude. What is that that single thing that you think is the most harmful thing that musicians do? Oh, I, a great question. I think what people do, musicians specifically, they word and think themselves to failure. What, what do you mean they, by that? They word themselves to failure. They use words that are words of failure. I can't do that. I'm not that good. 
Oh, that player is much better. Oh, I'll never get to that level. They, word, they use words that are words of failure. Or they have thoughts that are thoughts of failure. Before they even open their mouth, they're thinking that it's not going to happen. So I think what the musicians do is they don't give themselves the benefit of the doubt of trusting their instinct, your mm. inner gut feeling of what you feel. Go for it. This is what makes players like Steve Gadd so great. He goes into a session to learn songs completely with a blank slate. Whatever that song then inspires him, he starts pulling out of his resource center and finds the right groove and the right playing, you know, tempo and fill to fit into that song. And he always comes up with the greatest because he trusts his instinct. So I would love to see musicians more so not talk themselves into it not being good or I'm never going to achieve that. And before they even start the journey, they're completely you know, thinking of themselves as failures. Mm. And so that's know, why I say people thinking themselves and wording themselves to failure. And you know, this kind of ties into overall, you like to bring philosophy into what you do, especially when you teach. What was it that got you into philosophy in the first place? Well, you know, it's just a deeper understanding of life. I think if anybody reads any of the works of Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, these people, you know, thousands of years ago, questioned life. They questioned freedom of thinking. They questioned the future. They questioned humanity. They questioned morality. They questioned integrity and trust. They questioned these things. And by questioning them, you get to know them better. Mm-hmm. So I, I was kind of drawn to that in school. And I loved you know, psychology and philosophy, where philosophy is that, what's that bigger picture out there? And psychology is how does the human mind think about it? So to me, that that kind of intrigued me. And I said, as an artist, I want to be able to understand those factors because art is about self-expression. I've got to understand who I am and what I'm able to do so I can then express that. So I've got to go into a deeper side. Listen, if anybody hears Steve Gadd talk, you're going to hear, he's going to sound like a deep philosopher. If you hear Vinnie Kalayuta talk, Dave Weckl, Steve Jordan, you know, Billy Cobham, you know, Dennis Chambers, these guys are deep thinkers. Mm. They're deep thinkers at what they do. So anyone who is a master at their craft has to go down a path of analyzing thought and philosophy and psychology. That's incredible. It's a really, it's a motivating way to look at things, to yeah. try to attach that philosophical ideology to your, your career, because it can really help keep you motivated. Um, it's, it's also a part too, Scotty, where, where, where people understand, like, like when I say wording ourselves to failure, when I hear people use the word problem, I have a problem. To me, the word problem is a debilitating kind of a word. It's like there's a pressure on your shoulder. I got a problem. I, oh, man, there's a problem with my car. I got a problem with my apartment. I got a problem. I'm not making enough money. They use the word problem every day thousands of times. So I kept on hearing myself using that word, and I said, it's, it's not, that word's not, not helping me, so therefore, I'm going to replace the word, I'm not going to use the word problem, I'm going to replace it, replace it with the word challenge. A problem drags you down. We rise to the challenge. The mm. word challenge lifted me. Now, did I have a challenge with my car sometimes? Totally. <laughs> start, I had to go out and I had to fix it, but it challenged me. When I overcame the challenge and fixed it, I won. I became a stronger person. 
It was, it was just solving a situation that was working against me. It was a test. And inside the word challenge, the first three letters and the last three letters of the word challenge is the word change. So if I want to accept that challenge, I have to accept change. And that became, to me, really empowering for myself. And is that like you're the driving factor of your career is keeping that kind of that philosophy in your head it's one of the driving factors of keeping myself at that state of of thought all the time Hmm. well dom i don't want to run out of time but i I have a couple questions that people have asked and i want to read them to you pretty quickly get your take on them so i have two questions that are pretty similar one was mentioned to me privately actually from my father and um (laughs) one of them was put in the chat from ian miller uh, so they're two similar questions, but what Ian asked was, what's your view of the health of jazz today out with this pandemic? Uh, pandemic? Do you think it's in good shape and are you optimistic? And you can stretch that to be a, a music as a whole, because the other question I got was, what do you think music as a whole is going to be like after the pandemic? Well, first of all, I love your parents. You know, you, your dad and mom are just fantastic people. They have been so supportive of you. They are wonderful people in their own right as far as musically and dedicated to even horses like your mom is. It's just so great to see their passion of what they do. Wonderful people. And Ian, thank you so much. I believe jazz is in fantastic hands. I have heard some great jazz playing throughout the world, in the States, in Canada, in my travels to China. Jazz is now hitting China, and it is starting to really take a wave of small group jazz, Big band jazz, contemporary jazz, older jazz, it's alive and well happening in China. In Europe, there are tons of jazz festivals that I go to when I'm over there, all throughout France and Germany and up in in Scandinavia. It's incredible. The North Sea Jazz Festival, Montreal Jazz Festival, the Montreux Jazz Festival. There are still festivals that are going on. And there is a young generation that is starting to see the value of jazz. Jazz is America's greatest export. Hands down. I travel around the world. When I hear jazz, that's America speaking about the land of freedom. So to me, jazz is in good hands. I just ask everyone that can possibly hear my voice, whether I'm here with you right now or sometime in the future, do the research. Go support and listen to some jazz and go back and hear different types of jazz. Dixieland jazz, swing jazz, big band, bebop fusion step all into it and you know take it from louis armstrong to miles to charlie parker to john coltrane to to all these great jazz drummers buddy rich and gene krupa step into the world of hearing what they gave us jazz will open you up as a person and will open up the deepest sense of your philosophies that was a a great point because jazz was how i got into music i started very young playing jazz and Nowadays, most of the stuff I do is is mostly pop and rock and that kind of stuff. But jazz really was the thing that got me into playing the drums. And so forever, even though that's not my main focus right now, I, I always have a, a deep appreciation for jazz. Nice. And here, I want to I want to leave us on a very positive note. So I'm gonna ask you one more thing that I this is something that I want to know personally just for myself. <laughs> talking about remaining positive, keeping yourself productive, not using you know negative terminology when you're talking about your career. What do you think is the single most important thing that people can do to change themselves that will positively affect them in their life or with their productivity or work ethic, stuff like that? 
Boy, great question. Uh, for me, that answer is actually pretty simple, Scotty. The word simply is compassion. Compassion means to feel what other people feel. In this world now, especially with this pandemic and the current challenges we have in, the, in our country being so divided, compassion allows me to feel what someone feels. I don't have to agree with them, but I think there's gotta be a higher sense of humanity. We are only one race. You know, I went to the doctor's office recently and I had to fill out all the forms. And on that they said, um, you know, what is your race? And they had, they had, you know, they had white, they had Asian, they had, and I crossed it out and I said, human. How did I'm they a, react to that? Well, they, they were kind of shocked. I said, I'm of the human race. If you're asking me what my ethnic background is, then I can answer, I've, a, I've got Italian and Greek background. But if you're asking me what my race is, what I, what I said to the, to, the, to the head, I said, what a stupid question. We are one race on this planet. I said, give me a freaking break. I said, change the question. If you want to ask the race, it's going to be human or not or alien. That's what it's going to come down to. <laughs> if you want to talk about ethnic background, that's a different question. So we, sometimes we ask the wrong questions and therefore we receive the wrong answers. Compassion allows me to ask a better question that allows me to feel what other people feel. And with compassion, a greater sense of compassion, then comes trust. Once there's trust, there can be respect. Hmm. Compassion will lead us down that path. That's a very important path for everyone to travel. And now more than ever, as we're coming up to a new election, the country is divided. People are angry. People are unhappy. People are dying because of this, this pandemic. We need to have way more compassion. And hopefully that compassion can lead us towards trust, which will lead us towards respect. Well, Dom, as an incredible note to leave us on, I'd like to say thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, it means a lot to be trying, getting people to come on here and, and, and really talk candidly. So thank you so much. Um, I'd also like to say thank you to everyone who watched. Any final thing you'd like to say, Dom, to everyone? Say goodbye. <laughs> Yes, I always say, I believe, I really believe in the future of this wonderful next young generation. I really do believe in them. And I believe that they're going to discover cures for diseases. I believe they're going to produce music that's going to heal. Like the Beatles did for me as a young child, it healed me. It gave me hope. I believe there's the next band and music out there that's going to deliver hope and a great positive message. So I believe in this next generation. I only ask one thing from this next generation. Prove me right. Prove me right. Fantastic, Dom. Well, you know what, Dom? Make sure you stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, I, I wish the best to you and your family. Again, thank you so much for joining us. To everyone who is here, thank you for your questions. Thank you for watching. This replay will be up on YouTube forever, as well as audio versions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, basically anywhere you want to get your podcast. Dom, thank you again. And to everyone watching, have a good day. Thanks so much. Wow.